you grab a seat and as you do get your Bible on your lap in front of you to Genesis chapter 4. If you're newer to the Bible, it's just really a a few pages in at the front there. We hope you'll join us. If you're watching from home, so glad that you're joining us. Get your Bible out as well. Um, We are uh, five weeks in now to this journey through the very first book of the Bible. And uh, we talked about this up front and I just want to remind us, this is such a crucial study. Walking through Genesis is so important for us. Why? Because all of the Bible is a story. It's the story of God's big and grand redemptive plan of how he is uh, redeeming broken people back to himself as a holy God for his glory. And so to understand really all of the story, you have to understand how the story begins. And what we see in Genesis has threads all the way through all of the Bible. And Genesis is an important study for us as well because it really answers some of life's biggest questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the purpose of this existence anyway? And how did all of this get so kind of muddied up and broken? And, 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 and how did kind of the world become what it is today? These are the questions we really get to unpack as we walk through this book. And so we're just in part one of a four-part uh, series that we're walking from now to Easter. And I, I just want to unpack kind of how we've broken up part one here uh, from creation to battle. That is part one, creation to Babel. And so uh, we began uh, unpacking creation, looking at the fact that God made this world. All of this is his. He spoke it into existence by the power of his word. He made us. And if we are his, we are to walk in this world in his ways. Our life is for the purpose of his glory. Uh, He gives uh, man and woman a command. He says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wanted his image multiplied across the globe. And so um, uh, this was supposed to be beautiful and unbroken to to see uh, the creator God's image through man and woman all over the globe. And then Genesis 3 happened that we saw last week. And sin enters the world uh, with one bite of a fruit. The human race rebels against this holy creator who made them. And uh, we pick it up in Genesis chapter 4 today. Now, um, I don't want us to to necessarily think about last week and this week as like two totally totally disengaged things. I want us to see how Genesis 3 and how Genesis 4 go together. Um, In Genesis 3, you have the first sin. In Genesis chapter 4, you see how quickly uh, evil escalates from that first sin. Within within one generation, what we'll study today with the story of Cain and Abel, we have a, a, a brother murdering his fellow brother. We see here today how quickly the evil, the exceeding sinfulness of sin can escalate in the lives of the first humans and in our own lives as well. And my hope is that these two weeks, I hope it creates the sense of urgency in us to deal with our sin the way God is calling us to deal with our sin. I think sometimes we can just, you know, okay, yeah, I know I should deal with it. I'll get to it. Maybe it's not as big of a deal. I hope uh, last week and this week creates in us the sense of urgency to deal with our sin the way that God asks us to deal with our sin. Because here's the thing, and I just, I want to make this statement kind of as the header over all that we're talking about today. We don't just do sinful things. We are sinful people, desperately in need of being made new. Now, that's really important for us to understand. We're not just moderately okay people who do some bad things sometimes. There's something deeply flawed about the human heart. 
Uh, there's something, deep, something deeply broken in the human heart. We are sinful by nature. Praise be to Jesus for coming and making us new and redeeming us from that. Amen? But we have to understand that. And so if you're in the room today and you're hearing me say, man, like we're, we're flawed from the heart, there's a remedy for that flaw, and his name is Jesus, and I hope you know him before you walk out of here. And if you are a Jesus follower, we need to remember, like, our sin is such a big deal, it cost our Savior his life. And it's important that we address and we deal with it. And so uh, this week is another week on sin. We're going to see how the evil escalates. We're going to look at what happens in the Cain and Abel account. And we're really going to let it confront our own heart of how quickly evil can escalate in our own lives and in our own culture today. And by the end, though, we're going to look at the remedy for this evil, uh, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to have, be filled with hope because of that. And so if you will, uh, jump into your Bibles with me. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Says now Adam and Eve. Uh, now Adam knew wife. Easy for me to read, right? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, "I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord." And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, just start here. It's interesting to note that um, Cain and Abel seem to in, in, intuitively, inherently know to bring an offering to their creator. Uh, there's no command that we see here. The Lord never said, hey, Cain, hey, Abel, hey, bring me an offering of the fruit, bring me an offering of your herd. Uh, they, they do this, what seems from what we can tell, out of the overflow of the heart. Cain brings an offering, but then as the Lord describes Abel's offering, he describes it as fundamentally different than Cain's. He notes the details of Abel's offering. It said, Abel brought the what? Abel brought the what? firstborn of his flock, and then it also noted what kind of firstborn. He, he brought the fatty portion. So Abel brings his first and his best. And, and just as an aside as we begin here today, I just want to compel us and, and, and call us into bringing our first and our best to the Lord all the time of our time and of our talent and of our treasures that we would bring as an offering our whole lives, our first and our best. Uh, we're going to see how God is able to look right to the heart here, to get to the heart of Cain and bringing his offering, to get to the heart of Abel and bringing his first and best. And I just call us as people of God, let's always be people seeking to bring the first and the best to the Lord of our time and of our talent and of our treasures. Now, look at God's response to these two brothers' offerings. Middle of verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, or the Lord accepted Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very what? So Cain's very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, now hear God's warning to Cain. We're going to camp out here on God's warning to Cain. It's really important that we heed God's warning to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or its desire is to control you. But you must rule over it. 
First thing I want us to know is the warning that God gives here, and it's this. Sin is crouching and ready to control me. Sin is crouching and ready to control me. I need one who can crucify it. We'll talk about who this one is I'm referencing here later. Sin is crouching. It's ready to control me. We need one who can crucify it. We have to heed God's warning to Cain here. Um, God is saying, I see the anger in your heart. I see it growing inside of you. Watch out. Watch out. Sin is crouching. It's ready to pounce. It wants to control you. It wants to dominate you. Watch out. The Lord is compelling Cain here. Listen, um, you, you cannot play with sin. You cannot dabble in sin. You might say, oh, it's just a little anger. A little anger grows into something murderous. Watch out, Cain. Sin cannot be played with. Sin cannot be managed. What do I mean? We can often get so, uh, we can often try to manage our sin. Just a little bit here, and, and, and I'm going to stop a little bit before it hits that part there. No, that's not how sin works. You know, so often, you, you know, we'll hear, and probably we had this thought at different seasons of our life, like, I'm just going to live it up now, and then maybe when I get married or have kids, I'm going to settle down, change the way I live. That's not how sin works. Hey, I'm, I, I, I know that I need to change some things, but I'll, I'll make sure I stop before it ever crosses this line. That's not how sin works. When we wade into the river of sin, thinking we are fully under control, we have no idea the power of the undertow that will just sweep us off our feet and leave us thrashing and splashing around looking for hope and help. We have to remember that sin cannot be played with. Um, when uh, I'm working out in the garage, the older two boys will come out, and if the toolbox is sitting there, they'll just start digging through it. And, you know, wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers everywhere. They'll go. They'll just start hammering things they shouldn't be hammering. They'll break everything I'm trying to fix. And it's just kind of how it goes as you're working in the garage. And I love that. I love when the kids come out and they're just playing with tools and whatnot. But I always draw a line somewhere. I draw the line when the three-year-old reaches for the sawzall. That's going to end bad. Why? Because a three-year-old shouldn't play with a sawzall. A three-year-old can't handle a sawzall. A three-year-old can't manage a sawzall. Listen, y'all, sin is a sawzall. We have to know that. It's not something that can just be played with, dabbled in. You know, I'm going to go this far and then I'll stop. I'm going to live like this, but at another part of life, I'll change and I'll reform. No, sin must be mortified. Sin must be crucified. And listen, there's hope to crucify it. And the hope is in a crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not strong enough to crucify it. I'm not smart enough to mortify it. We all agree with that. But Jesus Christ came to conquer sin and to conquer death that we might know him and be filled with his spirit and pursue holiness and run away from sin. But the Lord says to Cain here, watch out, man. It's crouching. And it'll pounce. And it wants to control. You got to rule over that. Cain doesn't heed the warning. And what I would argue, and maybe we could debate whether this is or not, but what I would argue is probably the most sad verse up to this point in the Bible, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Second thing I just want us to see here in this passage, when sin has its way, it always leads to death. When sin has its way, it always leads to death. I need one who can bring life. We need one who can bring life. When sin has its way, it always leads to death. We see that pretty clearly here, how this anger has grown and blossomed into a murderous action of his own brother. And now we read that in one little sentence. And then we move on to verse 9, and, and, and if you know the story, you can even grow a little more desensitized to it. But we got to understand, this is horrifying for a world that shortly before this was perfect, untainted by sin. You know, we can get so used to hearing on the news or, or seeing on a news feed another homicide in Indianapolis, another murder over here, and, 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 and we sadly just like, oh, that, that's awful, and we can move on with our day. Think about how horrifying this is, that we're four chapters into the Bible and a brother has murdered his brother. It's crazy. It's how sin escalates, and it's how sin escalates so quickly. We're just one generation away um, from uh, their mom and dad sinking their teeth into fruit, and we're already to murder. It's how sin operates. Uh, what's, Cain's, what's the Lord's response? What's Cain's response? Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Here we go. The Lord um, the Lord addressing this in the same way he did their parents' sin, asking a question. Adam and Eve sin, the Lord comes, uh, his presence comes into the garden, he says, where are you? And they're hiding. Here we have another question, drawing out Cain's heart. Where is your brother Abel? Cain's response, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's a really important verse right there. Uh, we're going to come back to a, a, a mention of this, this idea right here that we find later in the Bible in the book of Hebrews. That, that the blood of Abel is crying out. This, this act of injustice is crying out to a just God. The blood from the ground having a voice that the Lord is hearing. The voice the sound of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In this paragraph right here, we see all of those words of sin we talked about last week. Action. What? Cain kills his brother. Reaction. The Lord says, Hey, where's your brother? And what does he say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Remember, uh, remember what we said, how we would want to react after the action of sin. What we'll want to do is to hide or to blame. What we need to do is confess and own. The Lord comes, says, where is Abel? And he says, I don't know. He's hiding his sin. We'll always in our flesh want to hide our sin instead of owning it. The reaction will always want to be to cover it up and make sure no one knows. 
and try to protect your reputation, try to protect your image, when what we need to do is come out and experience the goodness of God's grace and confess it and own it and say, I have sinned. Like David did when confronted with it, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And you see him here, his reaction is to try to initially hide it. You see the consequences. And these are harsh consequences. Remember, Abel was a keeper of sheep, um, but uh, Cain was a farmer by trade. And the Lord says, as a consequence, this cursed ground, this, this ground that I've already said it's cursed, it's going to be even more cursed for you. The, the, the ground will not yield to you its strength, is the wording that God uses. And then he says, you're going to be a fugitive and you're going to be a wanderer. And the consequences of Cain's sin here, but then you see God's grace. Even to Cain in this moment, Cain said, this is too much. Someone's going to come up and murder me. There's no way I'll be able to make it. And the Lord says, no, 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 I will put a mark on you and I will protect your life. Anyone who seeks the vengeance on you will pay for it seven times. You even see the practical example of God's grace here. But when sin has its way, it always leads to death. We need to be looking to the one who can give life. Life over the sin. Life away from the death that creates sin. And that one is Jesus Christ. Um, and so, you have the parents who ate the fruit, sin enters the world. Their sons have already, one son has already murdered another son. We come now to an interesting little part of, of Genesis chapter 4. There's sometimes when we're reading the Bible, right? You'll be reading in a chapter, you'll be reading a story, and then there's a part in it and you're like, huh, I, I wonder why that's in here. And I wonder why it's right here. It's almost like it kind of broke the story up. And what is its purpose? And yet we know all Scripture being God-breathed, every part of the Bible is inspired and every part of the Bible is perfectly where it's at as God designed. So we come to verse 17 and we're going to find this short genealogy that unpacks for a bit, us a bit the line of Cain, the descendants of Cain. And what God is doing, He's helping us understand the people are multiplying the earth is being populated. Descendants are coming, but there's a problem. The image is not being multiplied. The image of God is not populating the earth. And so we're going to see what the book of Jude will call like the way of Cain. What, what do we find in the line of Cain? Read it with me, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called, the name of the, uh, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Your guess is as good as mine on those names. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Now, we come to this little riddle that Lamech says here. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have what? I have killed a man. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And you're like, okay, what's the purpose of this short little genealogy of Cain and then this riddle by Lamech? I think one of the things God is revealing to us in this is look at the line. Look at how the depravity is growing. Within the line of Cain, you already come to another murderer in Lamech. You see this culture that that sin breeds a culture. To say it like this, sinful people breed sinful cultures. We need one who's a culture changer. Sinful people breed sinful cultures. We're seeing this happen. It's going to become so depraved that in Genesis chapter 6, a holy and just God is going to have to enact justice on this earth because of the rampant sin that is spreading across the globe. And we'll see that next week. But sinful people breed sinful cultures. And listen, this isn't the part of the sermon where I'm just going to like rail on the culture around us that are outside of our walls. I think all of us, right, are in tune enough with our own hearts to know, apart from Jesus Christ, I don't even know the depravity I'm capable of. You with me? Like apart from Jesus redeeming us, this wicked heart is, is capable of some deeply evil things. If you have a culture unrestrained, uncontrolled by the Spirit of God, if you have sinful people, sinful hearts, unconstrained, uncontrolled by the Spirit of God, the culture that that breeds is one of rampant sin. We see it growing four chapters into the Bible. We know it so well because of what we live in in our day. Am I right? We've witnessed the first murder to just kind of tie this to go, how does rampant sin multiplied by thousands of years, what does that turn into today? We, we just saw the first murder of human history. Take the number of homicides in Indianapolis from just 2020. Add to that the number of homicides in every major city within a five-hour drive of where we're sitting right now. It's staggering. It just seems you see it on the news week after week, and we just can kind of grow callous to it. You look in the history of our country, and we have to confront the reality that over 60 million unborn babies have been murdered in our country. We have a culture of no regard for truth as God states it, but instead a definition of truth as which we define it. The, the, hot, the hot phrase, right, is this is my truth or that's your truth or that's their truth. But the thing about it is there's only one truth and it's what God says is true. We, um, we, we, we look at social media feeds that are full of humor that God is not laughing at that make God cringe. We see so much hate spewed on social media from behind the protection of screens that's leading others to spiral into despair and despondency and depression. And it's like, this is just exceedingly evil. And oh, by the way, then I'm confronted with my own heart. I can rail on the culture. That's easy. It's not as fun when I look at right here. Yeah, maybe my hate hasn't led to a place where I've ever murdered someone with my hands, but I know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and I know the murder that's happened in my heart. I know the condescending thoughts that go through my mind. I know the moments of uh, a passive-aggressive comment. 
that really means something more than I let on. We see the sin in our own heart. We see the unrepentance uh, broadly in a culture in, wh- in which we live. And we say, Lord, come quickly. You're our only hope. Listen, uh, an election coming up 20-some days from now, that our hope isn't in that. I, w- I hope for a few more amens after that. <laughs> it's not. It's not in any uh, legislative undertaking, any cultural reform. Those are all important things. We should be leaning into them. We should be the salt and light that God has called us to be as His people. But our hope has a name, and its name is Jesus. And we say, you have to come transform a culture. You have to be the one who lets your kingdom come and your will be done through your people and for your glory. And we just see, I mean, I keep saying it, but I want us to get it. We are four, four chapters and 24 verses into the Bible, and we can see the evil escalating across the culture. And it's like, we need some hope. We're four chapters in, and we need some hope. You with me? I want to point out the glimmer of hope that God gives us at the end of this chapter. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you have this third son born to Adam and Eve. And we're told even back here in Genesis that it's the birth of this third son that God uses to spark a bit of a revival here. People begin to call again on the name of the Lord. They get their eyes back vertical. But, but there's a greater redemptive story to this, to this little sliver of a paragraph we have in Genesis 4. What is the greater redemptive story here? From Seth... If you flipped to the New Testament and if you looked at the genealogy of Jesus, you would see from Seth comes the one, the one we need. From Seth comes the descendant, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He comes as a descendant from Seth. Jesus is the sin-crucifying, life-giving, culture-changing Savior every soul needs. And man, he's the Savior our culture needs right now. And he's the Savior every home needs. And he's the Savior all of our hearts in this room need. God's intentionality here at the end of Genesis chapter 4 to say, and then Seth came, is to be for us this, this arrow, like this neon arrow that lifts our eyes up of just what we're studying in Genesis 4 and gets it out looking at the from, from Seth comes the Savior, this Redeemer, this one who can make it all right. Lift up your eyes, folks, and look to Christ. All through the book of Genesis, God is so good to us to get our eyes up to look to Christ. Eyes up to look to Christ. He is all over the pages of the first book of the Bible. Um, interesting verse. You know, so we're a couple pages into the Bible interesting verse we find near the the end of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says this. So now I'm tying Abel, and I'm tying 
Christ. I'm trying the blood of Abel. I'm trying it to the blood of Christ. We find this in Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? How does Jesus' blood speak a better word? Remember, it was the blood of Abel, uh, blood of Abel that was crying out to the Lord. This act of injustice, crying out to a God of justice. Now in the author of Hebrews says, it's Jesus' blood that cries out a greater word than the blood of Abel. How so? The sinless, spotless Lamb of God would shed his blood to satisfy the penalty for the sin of the world, to bear the justice of God for the escalation of the evil, to redeem a people out of their total depravity. It's the blood of Jesus that cries out is the only blood that can make a murderous heart clean, an adulterous heart pure, an idolatrous heart holy. Only the blood of Jesus can do this. He is the only hope. His blood was shed because we live in a world of bloodshed. And his blood was shed because our hearts are so oft and quick to carry out thoughts of bloodshed as well. He is the only hope. We don't just do sinful things. We are sinful people, and we desperately need to be made new. Uh, John Newton said this well. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Only a man who could say that could pen what we have as the most famous hymn of all time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because he knew that. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. The only way that grace can truly be amazing to us is when we have seen fully how ugly our sin is. And in a culture that wants to take that word wretch out of the hymn and replace it with one or person, listen, we're wretches. Apart from Christ, we're wretches. And if that like offends something in us, no, we have to acknowledge that so that we can rejoice in the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the grace of a good and powerful Savior. It's what leads us to rejoice. And so uh, burdened sinners, just addressing all of us in the room, burdened sinners, we've been saved by grace. And it's amazing. My heart, unredeemed by Jesus, uh, escalates into evil so fast. The flesh that still wages war in our hearts, even once we know Jesus, tells us all too powerfully how powerful this sin thing really is. But listen, there's one who is more powerful than our sin, and it's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we praise him for the grace that he's lavished on us. And so church, if you would stand to your feet, we're going to sing uh, to close our time. We're going to sing about 
how amazing his grace is. But I want to say this. Um, uh, in the second service, we were singing, uh, what a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is. And um, that's one of those songs I've sung so much, I don't have to look at the screen. I can just say it. Uh, my mind can even drift into thinking about other things, things I'm going to talk about in my sermon without really engaging in it. In second service, we're singing that. And I'm like, oh my goodness. It seriously is a beautiful and powerful and awesome name. Between last week and this week, we've talked about sin, and I know it's heavy. And I know for some of us, if we've got some hidden sin that, that we're like, oh, I don't want to come out with this. I don't want, I would just tell you, if you feel hopeless in the hiddenness of that sin, the name of Jesus really is so powerful to crush it. We see throughout his time on earth, like demons would flee just at the name of Jesus. They flee just at his name. And so I just say to you, bring it out, put it on the table, bring it out to the light, and let's let the wonderful, powerful, awesome name of Jesus go to work on it so that we can live live lives in hot pursuit of him. And so God, I just pray to that end. Lord, would um, would you give us a sense of urgency over our sin? God, would we realize we can't play with it, dabble in it. We can't mess around with it. We can't try to manage it. It's got to be mortified. It's got to be crucified. And Jesus, you are the one who is powerful enough to crucify it in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you, uh, only through a relationship with you, do we as broken people have hope to be with you in your presence with a holy God. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. God, I just pray, would you embolden us to deal with the things we need to deal with. And Lord, as we do it, would we rejoice in the grace that you have lavished on us. And Lord, let us sing about that grace right now in a way that is fitting for the truth of how awesome your grace to us is. In Jesus' name.